0: I can't emphasize enough the importance of early diagnosis. I mean, let's face it, I've been doing this for a really long time, um, probably more than 20 years. And sadly today, I would say more than two-thirds of the patients that I see have functional class three or four symptoms at the time of diagnosis. And that's really not unchanged compared to what it was at the beginning of my career. Welcome to The Core, a podcast series brought to you by Core Vista Health, pioneering digital health to transform the way cardiovascular
1: diseases are diagnosed. Please welcome today's host, Scott Berger, CorVista's Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer. Join us for an enlightening and informative discussion with Dr. Valerie McLaughlin. Dr. McLaughlin is the Kim A. Eagle MD Endowed Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine, Associate Chief Clinical Officer for Cardiovascular Services of the UMMG, and Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at the University of Michigan. Dr. McLaughlin is a member of Corvista Health's Medical Advisory Board. During this, the core podcast, we discuss in detail the current challenges and shortcomings for clinicians to diagnose and treat their patients with pulmonary hypertension. We discussed the need to diagnose pH earlier in the disease progression. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for being here.
0: Scott, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Looking forward to the discussion for sure. As am I. pH is challenging to diagnose because it is not top of mind for community cardiologists. Can you talk to me a little bit about the challenges that you see with diagnosing pH?
0: Scott, that's a great question. I mean, despite all the advances that we've made over the past two decades in therapy, it still is too long from onset of symptoms until diagnosis. I mean, just face it, the most common symptoms, shortness of breath, fatigue, sometimes chest discomfort, are very common symptoms that community cardiologists and pulmonologists and primary care providers see all the time. It's a very common uh, syndrome of symptoms. And so most of the time, they are looking for the more common causes of dyspnea. They're thinking asthma or COPD, they're thinking ischemia or heart failure. They really don't think about pulmonary hypertension simply because it's not that common. And Sadly, sometimes patients have test after test or are even told they're, they're deconditioned or they're just getting old or they've gained weight and don't really come to a diagnosis for far too long. Wow. Wow.
1: That's really good. Thank you. We, we really feel like the Corvista technology has a potential to be a game changer as it allows for patients with atypical symptoms such as shortness of breath, fatigue, to be screened with accuracy for three diseases that are difficult to diagnose those diseases are CAD, LVEDP, and pH. Can you talk to me a little bit about what your thoughts are in having a a test in a CAD uh, analysis that could give you information on both LVEDP and pH? You know, Scott, I think this
0: technology has the potential to really improve the time from symptoms to diagnosis. Uh, Having a point-of-care test that gives you an idea about common disease, for example, for example, coronary disease, as well as less common diseases such as pulmonary hypertension, all wrapped up into one is really helpful for the clinician. So if you do this test and it's something that you're thinking about, like coronary disease, great, you go down that pathway. But what happens when you get some data about pulmonary hypertension? Maybe you weren't even thinking about that, and it goes higher on your list, and and perhaps you go down the road with other testing or a referral to a pulmonary hypertension center much sooner than you ordinarily would have for that patient.
1: As it pertains to pulmonary hypertension patients, the ability to diagnose and treat these patients much earlier currently really isn't in the physician's differential diagnosis, getting that earlier diagnosis and then treatment, what can that mean for the patients that you see?
0: Scott, I can't emphasize enough the importance of early diagnosis. I mean, let's face it, I've been doing this for a really long time, um, probably more than 20 years. And sadly today, I would say more than two-thirds of the patients that I see have functional class three or four symptoms at the time of diagnosis. And that's really not unchanged compared to what it was at the beginning of my career. But I can tell you that the opportunity to make a diagnosis earlier can really impact the course of the disease. And I think we've learned this through the scleroderma population. We now have screening tools to help diagnose pulmonary arterial hypertension, which complicates about 10 to 15% of patients with scleroderma, much earlier. And I see every single week in clinic, patients with scleroderma who were screened and diagnosed in the earlier stages of pulmonary hypertension that are doing well for many years on less complicated therapies. So I've seen it firsthand. Earlier diagnosis can improve the course in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Wonderful. Wow.
1: Thank you. I am someone who early on didn't know enough admittedly about pulmonary hypertension, but as you and I have talked and as I've become more aware of the challenges that these patients face, uh, it's something that, that is really, I'm really focused on ensuring that we can bring the best diagnostic tool to, to you as a physician to help the patients out and to really make a difference in these patients' lives. I'm interested how you got so passionate about pulmonary hypertension as a cardiologist? What really drove your passion to focus on this specifically?
0: Scott, uh, you know, everyone has this passion for various reasons. And I would say that what got me into this was just a fantastic mentor. I was trained in cardiology. I was trained in imaging. I was going to be an echocardiographer. And in my first faculty job out of fellowship, I was hired by Stuart Rich, who's really a legend in pulmonary hypertension. And he didn't hire me to do pulmonary hypertension. He hired me to do echo and general cardiology and attend on the In patient service and learn CT, which was becoming hot at that time. But after about six months, I'll, I'll never forget the moment. After about six months, he walked into my office and he said, I've been needing someone to do pulmonary hypertension with me for a long time. I've been waiting for the right person. You're it. You want to learn how to do pulmonary hypertension with me. And it was 1995, it was the year that the first therapy got FDA-approved, IV-epoprostanol, and I, I didn't really know that much about pulmonary hypertension. It was a rare disease. And in fact, when I was a fellow at Northwestern, we sent the patients to University of Illinois to Stewart when they had this. So I didn't have that much experience. But Stewart was a wonderful mentor, a wonderful teacher. And I spent the next year or so just following him around and learning pulmonary hypertension for him. And, and really, I, I owe it to him. That's what started my passion. Um, so it was a great opportunity academically as you know, a disease that was taking off the patients are are just you know it's heartbreaking right? they're so young and they're so devastated by this diagnosis and the opportunity to help them was was really really wonderful so it's become a, a really exciting career for me and I've enjoyed every moment of it
1: <laughs> that's a wonderful story wow it's it's so great to have mentors that, that spark passions in our lives that's 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 amazing. One of our other uh, medical advisory board members at Corvista, um, as, as we were talking with him about the opportunity to have three analyses, the the CAD, the HF, and the PH in, in one test, he specifically said, you know, I really don't even think about pulmonary hypertension. It, it's, it's not one of my the first things that come into my mind ever. He said, it's got to be something we overlook. Uh, you, as someone who cares about those patients, and knowing that so often in cardiology this is overlooked, that that must be very difficult for you.
0: Well, it it is. And I'd like to say that we've done a lot over the past couple of decades, but we still have so much more to do. And bringing a technology like this out to the front lines to do exactly what you said, to make experienced clinicians think about it more, man, I think that could be a game changer for the patients.
1: As we were talking, one of the things, and, I, and I, I've told my wife this, I've told uh, friends as we're talking, one of the things that sticks with me so much is we started to talk about the average patient that you see, and you talked about six echoes, and you talked about three or four pa- uh, physicians, these patients see three or four physicians, and you talked about the fact that it would be three, four, maybe even five years. But you also talked about the fact that a lot of these patients will undergo psychiatric evaluation and it's got to be difficult enough to be extremely sick but to have the med- the caregiver that you and go and see question that and and actually be looked at for for psychiatric evaluation I couldn't even imagine the difficulties that these patients are are uh, going through.
0: Yeah, I mean these are patients who you know you know sometimes they otherwise look well right this disease affects women more than men it tends to affect younger individuals and so you know an otherwise good looking 40 or 50 year old woman goes into the office and complains about shortness of breath you know honestly doctors don't really think about serious diseases that often and so while some of them may get testing others end up getting told you know you need to lose weight or you must be depressed or or something like that. So it it is really sad for those patients and you can see how they get frustrated and often go from one doctor to another and it can be years before they're diagnosed. I I think the other thing just to point out along with that thought is that sometimes physical exam is subtle and sometimes physical exam by providers who are not familiar or haven't seen a lot of pulmonary hypertension patients, like they may over overlook that. So I'm not trying to blame them. I mean, you you, you know, you just most frontline physicians don't see this diagnosis all that often. So yeah, unfortunately that the diagnosis is often delayed.
1: Boy, that, that just has to be so difficult for them. So as we look at CAD, and I've had a lot of experience uh, in, in coronary artery disease, and I know women are often misdiagnosed with with CAD, and they present differently, and, and their disease is different. Does that at all play into the challenge as well in in diagnosing pH, just because there's such an unknown inability to know exactly what's going on with CAD for women?
0: Yeah, you know, Scott, it's a great question. And I don't think we have as many studies on, you know, gender-related issues in pulmonary hypertension as we do in coronary disease, but we know in coronary disease that women tend to present differently. We know that that providers, and there's some gender biases in terms of the providers too, just don't think about serious heart problems as commonly in women as they do in men. So for sure, those things could be contributing to the delayed diagnosis in pulmonary hypertension.
1: Currently, what are the, the kind of the key methods for diagnosing? Pulmonary hypertension for 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 you and for say the general cardiologist who has, doesn't have a special specialty in, in PH.
0: Sure, Scott. I think everything starts out with the history and physical examination, but we've already touched on some of the limitations of that. In terms of the history, the symptoms are very nonspecific, exertional dyspnea being the most common. As I touched on, the physical exam, especially early in the course of the disease, can be subtle, or it can be just not familiar to someone who doesn't see these patients on a regular basis. So While we always have to start with a history and physical, sometimes that's not as helpful. You know, most patients are going to get an EKG in a cardiology office, and sometimes you'll see right axis deviation on that. But I think what really starts people thinking about pulmonary hypertension, is the echo, the ultrasound of the heart. And on that, you will often see enlargement and dysfunction of the right ventricle. We can estimate the right ventricular systolic pressure using the tricuspid regurgitant velocity. You might see right atrial enlargement or flattening of the intraventricular septum. There are a number of findings on echo. But I I have to say, again, there are limitations of echo as well. Sometimes the findings are not as obvious early in the course of the disease. Sometimes, again, cardiologists are just looking at what they see commonly, and they focus on the left heart and their interpretation and sometimes don't focus as much on the right heart. And while the tricuspid regurgitant velocity, if you've got a beautiful jet, can give you a pretty accurate estimation of right ventricular systolic pressure, we know that there are potential for errors both on, both on the technical side and on the interpreter side in the measurement of the tricuspid regurgitant velocity. And whatever measurement error you make there ends up getting amplified when you put that velocity into the Bernoulli equation, which calls for you to square it and multiply by four to get the transtricuspid pressure gradient.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. Does pulmonary hypertension go undetected?
0: Scott, I I think that... I'm not sure if I would say it goes undetected. I, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are patients who don't end up coming to medical attention and we don't know about. Um, I would say oftentimes... It's just not detected early enough. And there are patients, it still happens today. I get these calls all the time. You know, someone who'd been complaining of shortness of breath, no one really worked them up, but now they're in an ICU at an outside hospital in Florida, right heart failure, and it doesn't really get detected until it's too too far advanced. So yeah, it's it's still a, a problem that we would love to intervene upon, love to minimize that late diagnosis.
1: What can that early diagnosis mean to these patients?
0: Sure. You know, um, Scott, the, the, the main problem in pulmonary arterial hypertension is that there's proliferation of the small arterials of the endothelium and the smooth muscle cell, and there's there's basically destruction of that small Um, pulmonary vascular bed, and that increases the resistance in the blood vessels of the lungs and causes stress on the right side of the heart. Uh, And a lot of therapies that we have can help relax those blood vessels. Uh, We don't really have something that's curative. We don't have something that reverses all of that growth and damage that's been done to the pulmonary vasculature. So I think the simplest way to answer your question is the opportunity to diagnose it earlier will give us the opportunity to, to halt that growth of those blood vessels and, and halt that destruction to the pulmonary vascular bed before it gets too advanced.
1: So you, if you can get to it early, you can, you can in essence slow the disease, stop it from progressing, and, and keep that patient's quality of life as, as high as it is at that particular time.
0: I think so, and and again, the sad part is we can't we can 't say with a lot of definitive uh, confidence because we just don 't get that many patients that early, but we do have some studies in the patients with scleroderma who undergo aggressive screening, and we can see that the patients who are diagnosed at an earlier stage with screening have less advanced hemodynamics less right ventricular dysfunction and better outcomes than those scleroderma patients that historically came to us once they developed symptoms so i think that's the best comparison we can make
1: yeah it makes sense it, it, as it's a challenge to find them earlier now it, it would be tough to pontificate on on uh what it means if you can get to them earlier when you really struggle to be able to get to them earlier currently.
0: Sure, but it's logical, right? Yes, and if we can is. translate <laughs> that example from scleroderma, I think that gives us a little bit of evidence.
1: Absolutely. Maybe you had a whiteboard and you could design something to be your perfect product to help you diagnose pulmonary hypertension. What, what, are, what are kind of your, what's on your wish list?
0: So, I it's a great question, Scott, and I think I'm gonna just push back a little bit on the the diagnose. I mean, what you're asking for is something to raise the index of suspicion earlier, right? So, so what you're talking about is a point of care test that that I would say needs a pretty high sensitivity because you don't want to miss a, a lot of patients who have this, um, and you're gonna have to sacrifice some specificity for that. So a test that can be applied um, non-invasively point of care in the office of the local primary cardiologist or even pulmonologist, a lot of these patients end up going to see lung doctors to say, hey, the likelihood of pulmonary hypertension is pretty high. Maybe you should do more tests versus the likelihood of pulmonary hypertension is low or here's an alternative diagnosis. I think that would be really useful to, to... Get it on the differential earlier. It doesn't make the diagnosis. It's not going to be the perfect diagnosis, but it gets it on the dinner differential earlier, and that can can cause that primary or that provider to think about the other tests. Maybe they hadn't ordered an echo, or maybe the echo just didn't give a lot of information, but now we're more worried, and we send them on to a pulmonary hypertension center.
1: I love raising the index of suspicion. I think it it's such a A great way to explain what we need to do with pulmonary hypertension.
0: That's that's exactly right. We need to make people think about it. We need to get it on the differential diagnosis at an appropriate point in time. Again, you know, let's let's be honest. It's not the most common diagnosis that a patient's gonna have when they walk into a cardiologist or a pulmonologist office with shortness of breath. I'm not saying it should be at the top of the diagnosis for everyone, but if there was a tool that could help those frontline providers think about it earlier, raise the index of suspicion, I think we would find a lot of patients at a less advanced stage. They still need the full workup. They still need to go down the whole diagnostic pathway, but we need to be thinking about it sooner in some of these patients.
1: If we can get to them earlier, we can get them on medications earlier and hopefully improve their quality of life.
0: Absolutely.
1: And potentially the the length of life too. Yes. That would be amazing. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for being a part of the Corps. This has been a fantastic discussion. I cannot thank you enough.
0: To learn more or listen to more episodes of the Corps, please visit us at corevista.com. Please note, The Core Vista system is an investigational device limited by federal law to investigational use and is not available for commercial distribution.